Thank you so much for joining us today. We're always encouraged to know God is working through new beginnings to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please let us know. Send us an email at mystory@newbeginningsnj.org. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Today we're talking about Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a very powerful psalm. It's, very, it's, it's just loaded with the promises of God. And Psalm 91 speaks of the benefits of the person who develops a close relationship with Almighty God himself. Now, that statement I just made probably just went like this. Because I think we take for granted in the age that we live in, in human history, we take for granted. I'm talking about, when I say we, I'm talking about those of us that have put our trust and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us have experienced what the Bible calls being born again, that we have, have received the, the Spirit of God living on the inside of us because we have chosen to place our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us, paid for our sins, rose again from the dead, and made eternal life available to us. Amen? So, I said what I said because I want you to consider this. We live in the New Testament age. In other words, let's say this is the cross in history. We live on this side of the cross. But this psalm was written on the other side of the cross. This psalm was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even came to earth, before he went to the cross, before he sacrificed his life for our sins. And so, say, well, what difference does it make? <laughs> All the difference in the world. Because you see... On this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit, who now lives in us and stays with us always and forever, could not indwell, could not live inside of a human being at that point in time. Not until Jesus went to the cross. Not until after he rose from the dead. So now this psalm is contingent upon a person developing a very close relationship with God Almighty. So back in the Old Testament... That was work. Why? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them. And so you will find, when you read the Old Testament, you will find the phrase occurring over and over again on a regular basis, the hand of the Lord came upon so-and-so, or the Spirit of God came upon a king, a priest, a prophet, to enable them to do something supernatural that they'd never be able to do on their own strength. But once... That task was accomplished. Once a king fought a battle and they won the victory, the Holy Spirit would come off of that person, lift off of that person, and they would go back to living a very natural life. Now here on this side of the cross, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. You remember Jesus made this promise, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. That used to puzzle me. Why? Because Jesus left the earth. So how's he going to fulfill this promise? He fulfilled it through the Holy Spirit who comes to live and the inside of every believer, every person that's ever put their trust in him. And so for us now, I've said all that to say this. It's a whole lot easier for us to develop a close relationship with God Almighty. Why? Because his spirit lives in us. Amen? Amen? We have no excuse. Back then, they would have to travel to a place. They would have to go wherever the tabernacle, wherever this tent was where they would worship, they'd have to travel to. Or when the temple was built in Jerusalem, they would have to travel from wherever they were to get to that place to experience God. You and I have the Spirit of God living inside us. We, in a very real sense, we are, and Paul says this in the New Testament, we are the temples of the Holy Ghost. He 
he lives in us. Amen? Amen. Psalm 91. I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm going to do a little explanation. Then we're going to read the rest of this psalm. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That is a contingency. What are you saying? Pastor, what are you talking about? What kind of language are you using for this? Let me explain something to you. A contingency is something that must be fulfilled in order for the rest of the agreement to take place. For instance, if you've ever purchased a house, piece of property, whatever, you go, you look at the house, you go through it, you like this, this is nice, I can see us here, yeah, the furniture will fit. You come to the conclusion, yeah, this is nice, we want to put an offer on this house. Now, if you have a realtor and an attorney who know what they're doing, when they, when they write the language of that proposal, that intent to purchase, that offer, they're going to put a phrase in there that's called a contingency. And normally it sounds like this. Well, this person here wants to buy this house and blah, 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 wants to make this offer. However, should they not be able to obtain the right financing and the mortgage, then the deal is, is null and void and they get their deposit back. Now, if, God forbid, you should buy or put an offer on a piece of property, and you put, let's say, $20,000 down as a deposit, and you don't have that contingency in that contract, and you go to the mortgage company saying, oh, you don't make enough money, we're sorry, your credit's no good, this is no good, you got outstanding debt, we can't give you the mortgage. You can't go back to the, to the sellers and say, I'm sorry, we can't purchase this, can I have my money back? I say, well, we'll let you out of the deal, but you're not getting the money back, why? Because there was no contingency in the contract. Are you getting this? Verse one of Psalm 91 is a contingency. Why? Because all of the promises that we're going to read that follow after this are contingent upon one condition being fulfilled. You want to read it again with me? Ready? One, two, three. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. What is that telling me here? That in order for me to be able to take advantage of and to be blessed by the benefits of this promise, they are contingent upon me having developed that kind of relationship in the secret place of the Most High. I need to have been living my life in such a way, and if I haven't been up until now, I pray that every single one of us in this room today, that are hearing this message, that you will understand and receive the motivation and the incentive that if you have up until this point not developed a real close relationship with God, I pray that you do, because the promises that are going to follow over here are life-impacting. Amen? So let's read through it. We're going to read through it. Then they're going to come back and explain it all. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, and Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Don't let this language fool, you know, don't, don't let it kind of like confuse you. I'm going to explain it. And from the perilous pestilence, He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Verse 9, Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall before you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you 
They will keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, and the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Verse 14, the conversation shifts. It's now God speaking directly. Because he, who's he? The person who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He, the one who dwells in the secret place, shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And finally, verse 16, awesome promise from God. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Verse 1 and verse 2 reminds us of the first psalm that we studied a couple of weeks ago. He who dwells in a secret place in the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say, Lord, he's my refuge, my fortress, my God. In him I will trust. Psalm 27.5 says it this way. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion again. Don't let these fancy words throw you. I'll explain it. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. How many of you have ever gone through life and feel like the rock's on top of you? A pavilion is a tent. If it, the best way I can describe it and kind of get you that picture in your mind for you to develop that picture, if you've ever seen any of these movies where it's, it's like the time period of the Crusades or the Knights and all this stuff, you will usually see that the army is encamped in these little tents. Now, traditionally, if you're a smart king, you put your tent, your pavilion, in the middle of the rest of the army. And that's exactly what this picture is painting here. Because your tent, the king's tent, is the safest place for you to be. On a battlefield, you want to be as close to the king's tent as possible. Why? Because the king would have the most bodyguards and the fiercest and the bravest soldiers surrounding his tent. And that is exactly the picture that is meant to be painted in our minds through this scripture here. The secret place is a place that is not built by God. It is built by us. It is a place in our hearts. It's a place where we encounter God. It's a lifestyle that you live where you are exclusively, constantly putting God first in everything. It is under the shadow of the Almighty means to be near enough to him to almost bump into him. If you're going to be under someone's shadow, you can't be 20 feet away. You've got to be very close to him. And again, that is the language of this psalm speaking to us of the importance and the benefits of us having a very close intimate relationship with God Almighty. Amen? Amen? Moses built that kind of relationship. Moses knew what it was like to dwell in the secret place. He would spend time with God. When others would go away, he would get in that tent that they would build. And as they were going from, from Egypt, as they had been rescued out of Egypt, and now they're on their way to the promised land, and God gave them very specific, detailed instructions on, on this type of portable worship place that they were to build. This gigantic tent, God gave the very specific instructions how it was to be built, and that was the place that they would worship God in the wilderness, in the desert. And sometimes they would stay in one spot for a couple of months, sometimes they'd stay a couple of years, but whenever God said, come on, it's time to go, they would, they would break the tent down, they would cart it away, bring it to the next location, put it back up again, and they would spend time worshiping God. And Moses got to build that kind of relationship there. Remember that Moses at one point in time spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of Almighty God. 
He knew what it was like to be in the secret place. David the shepherd developed that secret place in his heart. Out in the fields and the pastures while he was raising and caring for his father's sheep. The prophet Daniel developed that secret place on his knees in his room in Babylon during the captivity when Israel had been, had been deported from their land into the land of Babylon. And, and he would spend time in prayer in that room praying for God's people to be released out of captivity. Jesus called it a prayer closet. It's the place where you meet with God. Now, you can have prayer without the secret place, but you can't have the secret place without prayer. In other words, let, let me give you an example of prayer without the secret place, because uh, all prayer is good, and all prayer, God, God receives all prayer. But, but listen to this. Uh, prayer without the secret place would be something like you go to the diner. Some of you will go out to eat after service today. And you go there, and you order your food, and now, and now you, know, you know I'm supposed to pray. Because this is what Christians do. You know, we, we're supposed to pray before we eat. And so, you know, it's either you or a group of people, and what you'll do is you'll make a general announcement. Okay, we're going to pray now. And then you make sure that the waitress is far enough away. You make sure that nobody else at the other tables is watching. You bow your head real quick. And say, thank you, God, for this food, and thank you that you watch over there and keep it safe. In Jesus' name, amen. That is prayer, yes or no? It's prayer. But is it prayer in the secret place? Mm. But prayer in the secret place is when you get into that place, and it's a realm. It's a, place, it's a place where time and space are suspended. And if you've ever had that experience of spending extended times of prayer, in prayer, and then you, you come out of this place and you realize, okay, I'm done praying, and you look at your watch, and you're like, an hour and a half just went by? And it seemed like 10 minutes? You've been in the secret place. When you get to that place where you're not really aware of anybody else that's around you and you're praying and all of a sudden God begins to speak to your heart and begins to give instruction to you, maybe, begin, maybe begins to give you a warning or whatever, I'm going to talk about that in just a moment because that's one of the promises here. You've been in the secret place. Verse, verse 3 goes on to say, Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Now the snare of the fowler, a snare, what is a snare? A snare is a trap. And it's, what it's referring to here is when it talks about the snare of the fowler, it talks about these hunters that would go to, to try to catch game birds, either to sell them or to bring them home for the family to eat, things of this nature. And so they would set up these little traps, and they were very, very uh, delicate. When I say delicate, in other words, the, the trigger mechanism is extremely delicate, so that when, the, when the, the, the bird, no matter how big or small they are, small birds, once they would get into that little trap, it would take this tiniest little thing to set that trap, and then bam, that, that bird is captured. And they're not getting out. They're now somebody's dinner. And the language that's spoken here is this, that when you have developed a lifestyle of spending time with God, getting in God's face, if you want to put it that way, and just spending time with him, the Holy Spirit will begin to reveal to you things that you need to be watchful of, traps that the enemy may be setting for you, maybe a temptation that maybe you've been susceptible in the past, and that God will warn you that this is coming up, and that's coming up, and be careful of this, and watch out for this situation. And so that is a necessary thing for us to have if we're going to live life safely. To give you an example of that, I've been sharing this in the services here, and some of you maybe heard this, tell this story before. And, you know, it's one of those things that happen. Uh, if you choose to believe it, you do. If you don't, I, I was there. It happened, so I know. Uh, we had traveled down to Florida a few years ago. And uh, my parents had just built a new house. They were still in their old house, but they built a new house. 
And so they said, why don't you pass by on the way in and, you know, come and see the house. So I dropped my wife off at, at, at their house and I'm going to take a ride over there. And so uh, I get there and I find the address. I get in there and I pull the car in the driveway. The house isn't finished yet, but I'm going to look around. And it was nice. It was on a canal. So I wanted to see the water and stuff like this. So as soon as I parked the car, as soon as I opened the door, I don't have, I didn't even get my foot on the driveway yet. Now I've got shorts on, uh, I got sandals. It's Florida, you know. So uh, as soon as I go to put my foot on the ground, I hear this as clear as if someone was sitting right in the, in the car with me. Watch where you're walking. There's a rattlesnake on this property. Now, I'm not stupid. I wasn't going to sit there and have a debate. Did I really hear this? Why? Because I hate snakes. Anybody that likes snakes, you need counseling. They are, they're just weird. They're just ugly. They're dangerous. They're, ah. I hate them. So I step out of the car, and again, I got sandals on. Uh, so I'm walking, I'm, you know, gingerly around. I'm walking, I'm, I'm watching where I'm going. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to get in fear. Why? Because God already told me to watch out for them. So I walk in the property, see the house a whole bit, get back in the car, drive over to my parents' house. As soon as I walk in the house, parents are there, my wife's there. My brother's sitting at the kitchen table, and he says to me, did you, did you go to the house? I said, yeah. He goes, did you see the rattlesnake? I said, how'd you know where He says, because I was there this morning and it was coiled up on the front side. I was like, wow. Talk about God warning you about a trap that's being set for you. You want to hear another one just like that? Uh, just one person, so I'll tell you after service. <laughs> you want to hear another one? Yeah. This one really freaked me out. Uh, I guess it was the summer before the hurricane, or standing. My wife and I had spent, were spending some time down in Brigantine Beach there. Uh, beautiful, I love to go to it. It's a beautiful place. And so Brigantine Beach is pretty unique. It always seems like in between tides, it developed like these tidal pools on the beach. And this one, this one particular time we were there, this tidal pool was probably about at least two to two and a half feet deep. And we had had dinner, and I said to my wife, I'm just going to take a walk on the beach where it gets dark and stuff like this. So I'm walking up down. It was very deserted. A bunch of teenagers over here just sitting on the sand. And I'm walking through the tidal pool. Because I'm a little kid now. I don't think this is cool. I'm walking through this tidal pool. And I'm walking. And it was, you ever see when all that foam gathers on top of the water by the beach? You really can't see the water. So I'm walking through there like a little kid. And I hear again that same voice. Get out of the water now. I'm like, I've heard this enough times. I don't have to be convinced. I get out of the water. Step out of the water. I start walking back. And the teenager says, says, did you see the shark? I walk back over, and sure enough, here comes this fin right in that tidal pool. Okay, so well, it couldn't have been too big. I wasn't going to stand there and measure it. <laughs> All I know is the, the fin is here, and the tail's back here someplace. Obviously, two and a half feet of water was enough for the shark there. I got out. What would you have done? Okay, thank you. So, he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowl and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth is going to be your shield and buckler. I really believe that the Apostle Paul was influenced by this passage of Scripture when he wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus, the Ephesians. Verse 6, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts or armies of wickedness in heavenly places. 
Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on your, the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We are given these pieces of equipment to protect us from the traps that are set for us of the enemy, from the attacks of the enemy. And if you're here today and you don't think that, that, that there is a real enemy, wake up. Because you have, we have, human, humankind has, mankind has an enemy that hates us. That hates us. And wants to do everything to try to destroy you. Verse 5, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the eye that flies by day nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, disease and things of this nature, nor destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. You're protected. Why? Because you have been spending time in the secret place of the Most High. Protection has always been promised to God's people when they, when they are close to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 7, it tells us that the Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way, and they'll flee before you seven ways. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Now, these are important promises. I pray Psalm 91 over my family on a regular basis. I pray Psalm 91 over this congregation on a regular basis. When I see in, on Facebook that you guys are going on vacation, you're going someplace, you're going to be traveling, I pray Psalm 91 over you for safety. I pray Psalm 91 over my grandchildren. Why? Because they're going to school with your grandchildren. How many of you know when your kids are home, they're fine. When they start going to school, they start coming in contact with all these different germs and viruses and things of this nature. This is a promise that we have, that God's going to keep them safe. Okay? All right, well, good. I believe it. There was a gentleman that lived in the early 1900s. His name was John G. Lake. He was a missionary to Africa from 1908 to 1913. And during that time when he was there in Africa, there was a plague that broke out in the area that he was serving. It was called bubonic plague, one of the most deadly plagues to ever hit mankind. Yet he was able to care for the sick and bury the dead without ever contracting this deadly disease himself. And when the medical professionals of his day began to question him, how is it that you are not becoming affected by this disease when others have died just for caring for them and burying the dead and things of this nature? His reply to them was, Brother, that is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. When asked by the same doctors, don't you think you should wear some kind of preventative coverings or things? John G. Lake would reply, no, but doctor, I think that you would like to experiment with me. Now, if you will go over to one of these dead people and take the foam that comes out of their lungs after death and then put it under a microscope, you will see masses of living germs. You will find they are alive until a reasonable time after a man is dead. You can fill my hand with them and I will keep it under the microscope and instead of these germs remaining alive, they will die instantly. And sure enough, they died instantly. And the doctors couldn't believe it. And again, they said to him, how is this possible? 
And he referred them to a verse of scripture in the book of Romans. Again, it is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, those people that stay in the secret place. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We skip down to verse 11, and this is what it says. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, in other words, the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, if you're a believer, if you've received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, his Holy Spirit lives inside you. The same spirit that took that dead, cold, lifeless body that was in the grave for three days and raised him from the dead, the Bible says lives in you and lives in me. And that's how last night we could see a woman instantly healed of neck problems. Why? We carry his spirit within us, the same one that raised Jesus from the dead. When we dwell in him, he dwells in us, that very same spirit. Psalm 91 continues, verse 11, and he'll give his angels charge over you, keep you in all your ways. And we know that the ministry of angels has always been assigned to those who are in close relationship with God. They are his messengers, they are his protectors. Verse 14 now is where I want to get to. Because now it takes on a very personal, very intimate language. God now is speaking to us directly instead of through the individual. And he's talking about and referring to the one whose habit is to spend time in the secret place. Verse 14, because he, the one who spends time in the secret place, has set his love upon me. Now listen to that language. You and I have the ability to set our love upon God and you and I have our ability to take that affection and to take that devotion back from God and place it on something else. A career, a profession, a relationship, material thing. What do we do? When we make something or someone more important to us than God, it's like we've taken that affection, taken that love, and set it somewhere else. God says this, because he has set his love upon me, Therefore, I will deliver him. In other words, I'll rescue him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Verse 15, he shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And verse 16, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him. Watch this. I want you to pay attention. I want to really close today and make a big impact on your life with verse 16. With long life, God says, I will satisfy that person who spends time with me, and show him my salvation. Now, if we were reading this in Hebrew, in the original language that this was written in, it would tell, it would long life I'll satisfy him, and show him my, the word for salvation is the word Yeshua. The word Yeshua is Jesus' name. If you were walking down the street back then with Jesus on the earth, and maybe he's a block in front of you or something, and you, Jesus, people around you go, what are we talking about? That's Yeshua. His name is salvation. So we can read the scripture this way. With long life I will satisfy him, and I will show him, I will reveal to him, I will unfold to him, and make him to understand my salvation, my Yeshua, my Jesus. And I'm going to show you how that literally was fulfilled in the life of an individual. 
Many of you know that the Apostle John gained the title as a disciple whom Jesus loved. There doesn't seem to be any of the other disciples that were closer to Jesus than he was when Jesus is on the earth. You might remember that at the Last Supper, the Bible tells us that John was so close and so, there was so much affection between John and Jesus that at one point it tells us that John put his head on Jesus' shoulder on his chest there. Now we understand that John was probably in his mid-teens when this happened. We understand that kind of affection. But that's, that's an indicator that John had understood the benefit of staying close to our Savior. Church history tells us that of all the disciples, John was the only one that died of natural causes. And depending on who you read after, he lived to anywhere from 100 to 105 years old. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The Roman emperors who were determined to exterminate Christianity had John arrested at one point in his life. And they tried to boil him in oil, tried to execute him. And God fulfilled Psalm 91 and delivered him. He wouldn't fry. No matter what they did, he wouldn't cook. And so they got so enraged, they were so angry, they were so determined that they were going to do something. They were going to totally eradicate Christianity that the emperor ordered that this man be banished to a rock in the middle of the Mediterranean off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. And what the Romans intended for harm to destroy this man, God meant for good because on that island, Jesus appears to John in his complete majesty. No one else had ever seen him before like that. None of the other disciples. I'll read it to you. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, John is writing his account of his experience. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about his chest with a golden band. Basically, he's describing what a king looked like in that day and age. His head and hair were, like, were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like fine brass, because they glowed as if refined in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun in its strength. And John says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. John got to see Jesus in all of his majesty, the way he appears in eternity. Why? With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my Yeshua, my salvation, my Jesus. Would you stand up, please? Thank you so much for joining us today. We're always encouraged to know God is working through new beginnings to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please let us know. Send us an email at mystory at newbeginningsnj.org. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today.